At the moment, or at least until recently, we had an understanding across whole, the whole of society that there are certain areas where men are not allowed to go and where women are not allowed to go. So single sex spaces, toilets, bathrooms, changing rooms, prisons, hospital wards. For those single sex spaces to work, it has to be policed by the whole of society. You do not have a policeman on the door of every public toilet of every Primark changing room. It only works because it's very socially unacceptable for a man to try and enter a woman's space or vice versa. Now, if you break down the social contract that says men are not allowed in women's spaces, predators are going to use that loophole to gain access to women's spaces. Um, It's an inevitability. Hello, welcome back to the Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill, and my special guest this week, Miriam Cates, the Member of Parliament for Penistone and Stocksbridge. Miriam, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. I'm really delighted to have you on. There is a big issue, I feel, that people should be talking about. And uh, that's the question of the gender reform bill in Scotland, the impact it might have on all sorts of issues. Firstly, women's rights, also the constitutional arrangements between England and Scotland and the broader United Kingdom. Lots of big political and social issues are thrown somewhat into the air by this bill and the debate around the bill. I know you have some very important views on this. And I want to kick off by asking you about something that happened in the House of Commons last week that lots of listeners will have seen, lots of people around the country will have seen, which is that you made a very pointed, important intervention in this discussion. And you were rather rudely uh, talked about by one Lloyd Russell Moyle, Labour MP, who jabbed his finger at you, accused you of being transphobic, uh, said that you were pretty outrageous. And I didn't realise he also crossed to the other side of the house and sat there and stared at you. I didn't realise that until I read Rosie Duffield's piece about this incident. So could you just outline exactly what happened and what it felt like for you to be on the receiving end of that kind of commentary? Yeah, sure. So as you've said, um, the government announced last Tuesday that they were going to essentially try to block uh, this gender recognition reform bill um, for the reason that uh, they believe that uh, it will affect equalities law across the UK uh, and not just within Scotland and therefore it's outside the remit of what Scotland can legislate for and also wider concerns about the safety of, of women and children as you said. Uh, and so there was an, what's called an urgent question about uh, this issue where Um, The Secretary of State for Scotland read out what the government was going to do and MPs could ask questions. Now, I couldn't attend that. I was in another another meeting. Um, But then the Scottish National Party called for an urgent debate, we call it an SO24 debate, which is very rarely granted. I'm not sure there's been another one, actually, during the time that I've been in Parliament. Um, So a two-hour debate at no notice um, about this issue, because obviously they're very um, upset with the fact that the government's intervened and they perceive to have, um, you know, gone over their, their, their remit in terms of, of devolution. So this is a, an emergency debate. And so I you know, turned up to the debate. It's an area that I follow closely, um, particularly with regard to uh, women's and children's safeguarding. Um, and so I got up to speak in the debate to make the points that you've mentioned. Now, I expected to be heckled during the debate because every time I have spoken about this issue and I've raised concerns about um, self-ID, about... Um, 
children being taken down a route of trans identification, uh, things like that. Uh, members on the opposite benches have shouted at me. So I was fully expecting that. And indeed, uh, they did not disappoint and they heckled me all the way through. Um, but I suppose I wasn't expecting um, what happened next, uh, which, as you said, Mr. Russell Moyle um, said that my speech, I think, was the worst speech he's ever heard um, and was transphobic and, and bigoted, etc. Now, you know, I unfortunately, far too many women, when they do speak up about women's and children's safeguarding, do get met with that response. But I don't want to uh, make a big deal of this because I was in a safe place. I was surrounded by colleagues, including male colleagues, who are fully supportive of me and who did actually speak on my behalf, who intervened, uh, who stood up in my defence and who actually, in the case of Paul Bristow, physically moved to be next to me to make sure that I was okay. So, um, you know, whilst it was unpleasant, I certainly was never unsafe and I don't want to make too big a deal of it because plenty of women have faced far, far worse um, but I do think it's a very good illustration of what can happen and does happen uh, when people raise legitimate safeguarding concerns, when they argue with, with reason and facts and they're met by a pretty um, overreaction um, and an emotional response. So in, in some ways, that, that was a perfect illustration of, of what can happen um, when, when people raise safeguarding concerns. What was quite shocking for those of us who watched it, I, th I think you're absolutely right, This there are many other women around the country who uh, are in a far less safe position when they raise these kinds of concerns. And we've seen some uh, gender critical women being attacked, yeah. being shouted at in public, uh, being issued with uh, all sorts of threats online as well. So really serious things have happened to women who raise questions about the issue of trans self-ID in particular. Mm. But what I think was quite shocking about your uh, uh, what your experience is that you raised one of your own lived experiences. You talked about the fact that there was a moment when you were in a women's only area. I think it was a bathroom. Yeah. And you had seen a, a male person, a biological male, and you didn't feel particularly safe. And uh, Russell Moyle shouted you down on that basis. He accused you of likening trans people to predators, which is not what you did at all. Uh, but one thing I found quite striking is, in, in identity politics, in contemporary politics, we're so often encouraged to listen to the individual's lived experience, to pay heed to what people go through in their daily lives and to take it seriously. But when it comes to women who talk about the importance of women-only spaces, the importance of sex-segregated spaces, we're not ever encouraged to listen to that. And in fact, we're supposed to shout it down and, and encourage you a phobia and bigotry. There's a real double standard there, isn't it, in terms of who, who is allowed to speak and who is not allowed to speak? Yeah, absolutely. And, and it was incredibly ironic, really, in retrospect, that I'd raised this um, situation where I had felt unsafe and under threat. Um, and it was responded to with, you know, an attempt to, to silence me and discredit what, what I was saying. But I think it, it exposes uh, what's underlying the point of view that, that says that, you know, men can be women and we've got to um, accept that, which is that it's not a debate. It's not a point of view that's, that's based in reality in any sense. And, you know, I'm a, I've got a scientific background. I used to be a biology teacher I mean, to say that men are stronger than women is, is just a fact. To say that almost all sex offences are committed by men is, is just a fact. I mean, when we meet a new person, there's nothing really more important than we need to, that we need to know than their sex. Because from an evolutionary point of view, from a biological point of view, as a woman, you need to know if that someone is a potential threat 
as a man, you need to know if that someone is a potential rival. I mean, that's, you know, that that's just evolutionary facts. And it's the same in all species or all mammalian species. So that's not controversial. But if you don't accept those basic facts, then you suddenly start thinking that women who uh, expect that men may be predators or who are nervous of men are not based in reality, but they're actually prejudiced. They're actually bigots. They're actually um, trying to be judgmental, which isn't true at all. Um, and even if a man never committed, if even if no more sex offences were ever committed by men ever, ever again in future, women would still be frightened of men that they don't know in uh, intimate spaces because we are evolved to feel like that for very good reason. So it's a complete denial of reality to say that a woman should see a man in a space like that whose intentions she does not know and not be frightened. It's just fact. And if we can't accept those basic facts of biology and reality, then how can we have a sensible debate about this? So on that question of truth and reality and science. Um, one thing I did want to ask you about the, the, the broader issue of the gender reform bill, um, and I guess this this really pertains to the broader question of, of transgenderism and and the idea that people, could, people can change sex. Um, one of the issues with the bill, I think, and one of the reasons it's raised concerns with lots of people is because it would speed up the process through which someone could ostensibly change gender. It would reduce it to three months. It would also allow 16-year-olds to go through that process, which raises all sorts of questions about young people. And we've already seen Nicola Sturgeon tie herself in knots by saying, well, I'm not sure 16-year-olds should be allowed to go to the pub and get drunk, but maybe they should be allowed to change their gender, which is a far more consequential decision to make than, than having a pint. Um, isn't part of the problem with the gender reform bill that it's not really based in reality. And the notion that you can click your fingers and simply identify as the opposite sex in this situation without ever having to have a gender dysphoria uh, diagnosis, without having to go through a two-year period of, of living as your preferred gender, but simply uh, by saying, I'm a woman, and then instantly, almost, you are recognized legally as a woman. That in itself is a denial of reality and a denial of how sex works, isn't it? Absolutely. And it creates a, a legal fiction, um, which is not where the law should be. And you know, my personal view is that you shouldn't be able to change your sex on your birth certificate at all, because your birth certificate is a historical document that doesn't really belong to you. It belongs to society. Um, you can't change your place of birth on your birth certificate. You can't change who your parents are on your birth certificate. Why should you be able to change your sex? But you know, in, in some ways, that's a an argument that's been and gone because we do have the Gender Recognition Act in the UK wide, and you can, like you said, in some circumstances, uh, change your sex on your birth certificate. So, but the problem with this bill is that it will make it almost a decision of the moment uh, that you want to do this. And as you know, as as you've said, for sixteen-year-olds, how on earth can you possibly know the long-term consequences to you and to your welfare um, of doing that? Then it does. It makes a mockery of of the law. It makes a mockery of of the fact of. Uh, of sex, and I think, you know, there are there are technical and legal arguments, obviously, against going down this route. But there are wider societal implications, which again I tried to refer to in my speech, but we only had four minutes, so it's quite difficult to expand on at any point. But I refer to this change in the social contract, and I suppose what I mean by this is, at the moment, or at least until recently, we had an understanding across whole, the whole of society that there are certain areas where men are not allowed to go and where women are not allowed to go. So single sex spaces, toilets, bathrooms, changing rooms, prisons, hospital wards, those kind of facilities. For those 
facilities for those single sex spaces to work, it has to be policed by the whole of society. You do not have a policeman on the door of every public toilet of every Primark changing room. It only works because it's very socially unacceptable for a man to try and enter a woman's space or vice versa. Now, if you if you um, eradicate that social norm, if you break down the social contract that says men are not allowed in women's spaces, then you get into a difficulty because you can't expect shop workers, restaurant workers to police who goes in the bathrooms. It's totally unfair. Can you imagine a Saturday worker, you know, someone, a 19-year-old girl in Primark, what's she supposed to say when a bloke tries to get into the women's change rooms? Of course, she's not going to say, can I see your birth certificate? Access to changing rooms does not rely on birth certificates, it relies on our social contract. And this bill weakens or breaks that social contract. And that's why predators are going to use that loophole to gain access to women's spaces. Um, it's an inevitability. I think that's such an important point about the social contract and the social responsibility we all have to uphold these kinds of spaces yeah. and these kinds of deals that we make as citizens. And I remember when there was that image of Eddie Izzard going into a women's toilet, I remember all the men I know were saying, why would a man do that? I mean, when we were growing up, you could be completely drunk in a pub. You still knew that you did not go into the women's toilet. And if you did go into the women's toilet, the women would be incredibly angry. Your mates would say, what the hell are you doing? That's not somewhere we're supposed to go. Even in that at that level, you would still be aware of the social norms and the responsibility of men not to go certain places and the responsibility of women not to go certain places. And I think when that breaks down, we, we have some trouble in society. And I, I wanted to ask you just a, a bit more about the the heat in this discussion, because you talk about, you talk very well about the fact that we need a bit more reason, we need a bit more scientific reality, we need a bit more respect for the social contract. But you'll also be aware that there is so much heat, there is often a lot of bigotry against women. And so not only did we see your experience in the House of Commons, where you had a finger wagged in your face unnecessarily, but we've also seen SNP politicians on a demonstration in Glasgow at which there was a placard saying decapitate turfs. Now, those politicians say that they didn't see the placard and JK Rowling made a quite amusing comment about temporary blindness breaking out amongst Scottish politicians, but we can give them a, the benefit of the doubt and, and accept that they didn't see it. But we saw that placard. We've seen, of course, uh, JK Rowling herself being subjected to death threats and rape threats. Uh, we've seen people like Posey Parker, Kelly J. Keene being threatened quite regularly. There is a kind of underlying misogyny, isn't there? And, and that's obviously not a word that one should use lightly, but it's hard to know how else to describe this incredible venom that is visited upon women who dare to speak out on the issue of trans and, and self-ID. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, you referred to those placards and some of the slogans. And I have no doubt that many people and many politicians who are taking the side of, of self-ID in this debate are doing it for reasons that they believe are compassionate, are kind, uh, that they want to see you know, a, a world with less discrimination and all those good intentions. But I think they need to open the, their eyes and look at the very heart of this debate, at the very heart of the activism, certainly. It's quite a violent agenda. Um, a violent agenda that can't really engage with rational arguments, in fact, doesn't want to engage in rational arguments. And I think, um, you know, at the start of all this, some of the activists, their hashtag was no debate. And they literally wanted no debate. Now, you could 
you could perhaps infer that's because they don't have any reasoned arguments based in science and fact. Um, and they know that underpinning that, well, there is nothing underpinning this philosophy, really. Um, but it's very telling that they won't engage with those arguments. And of course, when, uh, when we do see social breakdown, when we do see the breakdown of social norms and cultural traditions, and let's remember, there is no civilized society in history that hasn't separated men and women in intimate spaces. And there's good reason for that. But when you do break down those social norms that some would call oppressive, it's women and children that suffer. And, you know, unlike in most species, adult males are far more physically powerful than adult females. And I think most, an average adult male can kill an average adult female with his bare hands. That's not the case in most species. But because of that significant strength difference, women and children need quite strong societal protections from men who would otherwise do them harm. Now, that's not in any way saying that most men mean most women and children harm. Of course they don't. But in order to make sure that there aren't opportunities to do harm, there has to be a strong understanding in society of men's obligations to women and children to keep them safe. And that's what this whole debate breaks down. And it is hard not to see at the core of it a deep misogyny that doesn't want to allow women and children afford us that protection um, and is using identity politics as a way of breaking down that protection. If you're a regular listener to this show or a regular reader of Spiked, why not become a Spiked supporter? Spiked supporters is our thriving community of people who donate to Spiked. Anyone who gives £5 or more a month or £50 or more a year can become a Spiked supporter and get access to lots of exciting perks. Spiked supporters can comment on articles, get free and discounted tickets to events, get a discount on all items in our shop and bookmark articles as you browse. This is our way of saying thank you to all of you who fund our work. Spiked is completely free, and yet you still hand over your hard-earned cash to make sure that anyone, anywhere can read us and listen to us. We're incredibly grateful for your generosity. If you don't give to Spiked yet, now is the perfect time to start. Just go to spiked-online.com slash supporters to set up your donation and your Spike supporters account. That's spiked-online.com slash supporters. So you, you mentioned children there, and I did want to ask you about another issue in relation to this that you've spoken out on. You spoke out on this last year in relation to the Mermaids charity and the controversies around that charity in particular. Uh, some listeners will be familiar with that, but there were accusations of mermaids sending out breast binding materials to young girls without their parental consent. We know that there was an individual associated with with mermaids who could be described as, I guess, paedophile adjacent, uh, at least. He, he spoke at a conference that was essentially a conference for paedophile rights. Another person associated with mermaids was photographed in a uh, girls' clothing and in a sexually provocative way. I mean, it, these are quite quite serious issues, aren't they? In terms of if you have a charity that presents itself as having the best interests of certain young people at heart, but it behaves in a way that is highly questionable, to 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 put it mildly, that raises lots of serious questions about child safeguarding in, in relation to the trans question, doesn't it? It does. And safeguarding only works when you assume that everybody who wants to work with children is a potential predator. Now, I, I, you know, nobody wants to be overly suspicious. We all want to be trusting. We all want to give people the benefit of the doubt. But the whole point of safeguarding in schools 
of following the DBS checking process, et cetera, is to assume that everyone who wants access to children potentially could be a, a predator and to treat everybody equally with that respect, whether you've known them for years or whether it's the first time they've crossed your path. And I think the problem with mermaids and other um, trans charities is that they've hijacked the popularity of, of this movement, which is, you know, we could have a kind of whole separate discussion about where this has all come from. But they've hijacked the popularity of this movement, the fact that, of course, teachers um, and people in, with responsibility over children want to be kind, they want to be inclusive, they think this is the next uh, frontier of, of social justice. And so they welcome them in with op open arms without thinking critically about why would someone want to tell a child they're born in the wrong body? Why would someone want to separate a child from the uh, loving protection of their parents? Why would someone want to tell a child to do something behind their parents' back or keep a secret? Those are all safeguarding red flags. But I think some people have been blinded by the politics of this, as has happened in the past with other political agendas. History repeats itself, doesn't it, sometimes, and have failed to ask the right questions. Now, Mermaids, as you said, is under investigation and the statutory investigation by the Charities Commission. So let's see, you know, I wouldn't want to preempt the outcome of that. Mm. But I don't think enough questions have been asked about not just Mermaids, but other organisations because of the political fear of speaking up. And um, in relation to that, I wanted to ask you about the impact that some of this ideology has on young gay people. And um, this is an issue that some people are talking about and taking very seriously. And if you listen to the voices of some of the people who used to work at the NHS identity clinics, for example, they will say that very often they'd get young people coming in, young women who had been subjected to homophobic bullying, young men who had had fun made of them because of um, what people presume to be their gay tendencies or their effeminate behavior. And very often it was after those kinds of experiences that young people were coming in and saying, well, maybe I'm the wrong sex. Maybe things will be fixed if a young lesbian turns herself into a young man and a young gay guy turns himself into a young woman. Yeah. Almost medical, almost like medical correction off the possibility that these young people would have grown up to be homosexual. So there's concerns there too, isn't there, in terms of just how regressive that movement is. The kind of things that we were horrified by now when they were done to Alan Turing in the 1950s, when he was given estrogen as a, as a form of punishment for his homosexuality, it's almost as if that's become acceptable now in terms of what's being done to some young people who would probably grow up to be gay. Yes. And I think it's very, like you say, it's very regressive. And I grew up in the 80s and 90s, which I think is probably <laughs> optimal time for girls to grow up, actually, uh, looking back. Um, and I thought we got rid of all those gender stereotypes in the 80s and 90s. You know, girls don't have to play with dolls. Boys don't have to play with trains. Um, just because you like football doesn't mean you're actually a boy. You know, all those kind of gender norms and gender stereotypes. Of course, you know, some girls are more likely to like certain things than others. But we got rid of those restrictive stereotypes in the 80s and 90s. And now they're all back. But they're all back with the possibility of permanent, irreversible, harmful change. And that's what's so um, worrying about all this. And it's not just a same-sex attraction in puberty that is pushing children down this route. It's also autism. I mean, the, uh, autistic girls are massively overrepresented in the cohort that seek help for gender distress. And you know, we just don't have enough research into that. And why, why are, are girls who are unhappy in puberty or who are unhappy with their body or who think they're gay going online and searching, I'm not happy with my body, and then they're being taken down this irreversible route 
Um, even being told the kinds of things they're supposed to say to their parents and teachers in all, order to be allowed to be referred to gender clinics. Um, it's, it's a huge scandal. I, I think we'll look back on it as a huge scandal. Okay, Miriam, just a couple more questions for you. I want to ask you about the broader political repercussions of what we're seeing in relation to Scotland's gender bill. So as we've already said, um, Westminster wants to block the bill. I think the government is right to do that. And and you think so too. And so do lots of other people. Um, where do you stand on the suggestion that Nicola Sturgeon and the Scottish National Party are pushing this issue almost as a way of distinguishing Scotland more from England. And some people have even accused them of weaponizing the trans issue in order to create that sense of distinction between bad Tory, transphobic England and lovely progressive Scotland, although the reality is is rather different. Um, do you think there's an element here where there is constitutional game playing and the SNP doesn't seem to mind that women's rights and other questions of of progressive social values uh, will be thrown under the bus as a consequence of that? Um, well, I yeah, I can't see into Nicola Sturgeon's mind, so I don't. I, I couldn't answer that. But certainly, from my Westminster experience, the you know, the SNP their agenda for independence supersedes all other issues. Um, so, no doubt, there is an element of of seeking support for independence and trying to um, trash the reputation of, of Westminster government in this. But it is quite a, a bizarre political strategy because all the polling seems to suggest in Scotland that Scottish voters, Scottish women in particular, are not keen on the idea of self-ID. And so I do wonder if she's shooting herself in the foot politically, or at least it will reduce her popularity amongst certain cohorts. So, uh, you know, I don't know what has led her to pursue this to this point against such opposition, against such uh, you know, biological fact and reality against the polls, who knows? And, you know, I hope that it will, you know, she'll look back and regret it because I think it's the wrong thing. But um, but it's certainly created a constitutional fight, hasn't it? And, and of course, the legal arguments are quite difficult and technical. It's quite difficult yeah. to explain in one sentence or on Twitter why the government thinks that um, this does break the rules of devolution. So, yes, in, in a way, she's... she's um, She's got a good argument uh, here, but we'll see how it pans out because, you know, it's interesting with some of the Id other identity politics aspects of the debate, they haven't gained that much traction in the mainstream media, whereas the gender debate is very different. And I think we've seen over the last 18 months, even the mainstream media have moved into this space and are quite willing to have a debate on it. Um, so I think the salience of it is increasing in, in the public's mind. And so I wouldn't be surprised if there is backlash in Scotland. Okay, so I want to ask you about another political party. This might not be fair to do all this, but there you go. I want to ask you about the Labour Party and Labour's problem with women. Now, this is someone you know, Rosie Duffield, and she has won a huge amount of admiration, uh, including from her, her opponents on the Conservative part side of the House of Commons. Um, because she has stood up on this issue, she has got a huge amount of flack for saying that men are not women and that women should have sex based rights and they have should have sex segregated spaces. Uh, she's been called a turf. She's been called a bigot. She's been inundated with abuse online uh, on many occasions. And, and she has spoken openly now about Labour's woman problem and the fact that there are quite significant numbers of people in the parliamentary Labour Party, as well as the broader Labour Party, who seem firstly incapable of saying what a woman is and also consequently incapable of standing up for women's rights and the idea of women's rights. How severe do you think 
Labour's woman problem, as as Rosie Duffield describes it, how, how severe do you think that has become? And do you think it's going to have consequences for Labour when it goes to the polls and asks for women to vote for it? Well, there's certainly a core of of women who um, once voted Labour, once were very strong supporters of Labour, who now say they never can until Labour sorts this issue out and can define women and will stand up for women's rights. Now, how big that core is from a political point of view and whether it would make much difference in an election, I don't know. But certainly I have women writing to me every day saying I used to be a Labour voter, but now I could never vote Labour at the moment or I'm going to vote Conservative at the next election. So there's a, a lot of strength of feeling. How many that it translates into on polling day, I don't know. But, you know, I I think Rosie is a hero because she has been so persistent and so brave. And for me, when I stand up and speak about this, I know that almost all my colleagues support what I'm saying. They are openly supportive, openly back me up. Um, Lots of people on our side of the house speak up on these issues. So, you know, I don't have to face that. And that makes a huge difference. But for her, she is so isolated and has been treated really badly uh, by her party. And so it's taken extraordinary bravery for her to to keep going. But Labour are going to have to address this because it may not cost them uh, votes at the next election. Who knows? But if they go down a path of self-ID, if they take on this, uh, go on this journey as Scotland have, but there will be severe consequences for society. They're going to have to uh, find their way through on this. Okay, Miriam, my last question for you is on, I guess, the political realignment and whether this issue that we've been talking about speaks to that political realignment. So identity politics seems to have thrown politics as we knew it up in the air. The culture war is being fought all over the place. I think the left is on the wrong side of the culture war in so many ways. Uh, We've already witnessed a, a situation where more working class people have been voting for the Conservative Party. So the Conservatives have sometimes refer to themselves as the working class party now. And now it seems possible that the Conservative Party will also be the party of uh, that will stand up for women's rights and the party that will stand up for gay rights while Labour potentially goes down the, the gender rabbit hole that means that they have less and less respect for those values. Do you think there's a, a, a political realignment taking place, not only in terms of class, but in terms of these social issues, which means that the Conservatives are making better choices at the moment than Labour is? I hope so. <laughs> There's certainly a realignment. And uh, I think we're seeing that in all of the Western world and not just in in this country. And it's up to um, conservative centre-right parties to try and capitalise on that, really, speaking bluntly. But I think, I don't think at the moment our party, Conservative Party, has capitalised on that sufficiently, hasn't really dug into the drivers behind this realignment. And I think that's because we're seeing it through certain lenses. So obviously, we we got behind Brexit. We were, we were the party of Brexit that saw that vote through. Um, and you know that got us through the 2019 election with a very good result. But I think we've got to look a lot deeper at to why um, all these issues are related. So the rapid change in culture, you know, the rapid deindustrialization of the North, the breakdown of the family, you know, the, the huge difference now between the educated elite um, and, and everybody else in terms of, you know, social attitudes. It's that division that has driven this political realignment. And I don't think we've dug into it fully yet. Um, at all. And we perhaps skimmed the surface. And I think what's so interesting about this gender debate, why it's perhaps getting so much uh, salience in Westminster compared to some of the other 
identity politics or, or you know, for example, the immigration debate until recently, is that it cuts, cuts across all social classes. So if you're wealthy and educated and part of the elite, mass immigration doesn't really affect you. You know, if you're if you're a wealthy elite, family breakdown and the destruction of marriage doesn't really affect you because upper middle class people still get married and they still stay stay married and their children benefit from that. But it doesn't matter how rich you are, if you are a woman and you don't know if a man is going to come into your changing rooms, or if you went to want to send your child to school where they're not going to be indoctrinated, and you, even the best schools, the most expensive schools in the country, can't protect your child from this, then suddenly you're interested. And that's why I think it's got so much salience, not just in the country, but among the Westminster elite, because nobody is safe from this. And I hope that that will actually be a really positive way of leaning into the other forms of the identity debate, because they're all related. They're all about this decision. Do I get to define who I am? Or do I have obligations to the rest of society that outweigh you know, my own personal choices? So you know, it's going to be very interesting the next few months and years. Miriam, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.